released in 2011, starring Jennifer Garner. Iconic. She was making movies in 2011. I know! I feel like she's dropped off the face of the earth, but please continue. She really has, except for, I feel like it was, was it like 2012 or maybe even later than that when she had that really great emergence in like the Oscar season when Ben Affleck was nominated for something and her tits looked unreal in that like purple dress? I do vividly recall this, you're right. I recall that, but I don't ever recall Ben Affleck possibly being in the realm of being nominated for an Academy Award, so. Maybe he was just like presenting or something i don't know please tell me about this movie so anyways um so jennifer garner stars as like this really uptight housewife in i think it's iowa idaho somewhere and she's married to ty burrell the guy from modern family yes and he is a champion butter carver and it's like a big deal in this what year does it take place like 2011 like it's it's set in the time it's okay okay yeah no it's crazy so then he's like a butter carver. Mm-hmm. He does these insane ones, very like religious themed butter yeah. carvings. Okay. Which was interesting. Like The Last Supper. Specific. Specific. I don't think they even had butter then. Or they, at The Last Supper. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. Are you anyways. not gonna tell me these facts in a minute? <laughs> maybe. maybe. Um, anyways, so she he's like forced to retire basically because he's been too good for too long. And so she's thinks she's gonna pick up the the butter carving implement, whatever that is, and start becoming a butter carver herself. Controversy ensues. Okay. Butter is carved. Butter. The theme of this podcast for today. Yes. All right. Welcome to Pantry Staples, where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Emily. And I'm Marika. All right. So the first thing is what is butter? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we all pretty well know, but it is just the fat of cream separated from the buttermilk. Okay. And then that fat is just churned, or the cream basically is just churned until the fat comes off and that fat is the butter. Now, how do we get this butter? How are we stirring it and creaming it and all that? Well, the first way that it was created is in the Near East when milk, cream, was put into a goat skin. Mm-hmm. And then that goat skin was just shaking around when they were riding through the desert or something. Okay. Now, we also have this method still in use in quite a few places, but in a slightly modified way mm-hmm. where what they will do is they'll fill a skin with the cream and then they'll attach it from ropes to three, like, I want to say sticks, but that's not like firm enough to hold this up, I guess. Large sticks. Large sticks, thank okay. you. <laughs> and then it's just like vibrated between the two or three of them. We... Also has. And that's in a skin. So it's It's in a skin. So it's still the same thing, but it's without using the pack animals moving it and less happenstance and more intentional shaking. Then we have the other, and this is probably what everybody thinks of when they think of butter churning, the dasher churn. So it's basically a large like vat Mm. with a lid on it and a hole. And then there's like a stick that goes through it and you just kind of wiggle it around. Oh yeah. My, my grandpa was born on a farm and we had one of those in my parents house for years and I always wanted to turn butter with it and my mom said it was too dusty it's <laughs> really sad I know I'd say that we could do it now but it's you it's gone you can still do butter but not in a dasher turn true true but that's not I feel as like fun. you'd get splinters I don't know the wood they must have oiled it right I assume so let's go with that the butter is it self oiling self oh gross yes it must be (laughs) um anyways this technology didn't change for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and it's only very recently that we see any sort of uh adjustment to it like even Mm. there wasn't new techniques made up until about 200 years ago probably um where you have um mechanized 
butter turners. Oh, and yes. then after that, we go into the industrialization of it. Which I'm going to tell you all about. Now, the best thing about the Dasher turns, if you'd like to hear a fun fact, of course, is that in about the 1800s, they advertised against cream witches. What is a cream witch, you might ask? Well, it's when you churn and churn and churn and churn your cream, but it doesn't turn into butter because the cream is haunted by a cream witch. Ooh. Which actually just means that your cream is too cold. So oh, what they I would, thought it was just going to mean that you're bad at churning butter. Can be bad at churning butter. You can just be too weak to churn butter. Mm, also, weak ass hose. <laughs> Anyways, so what they would do to solve this problem and to get the cream witch out of the cream was that they would put a scalding hot horseshoe into the cream, and then you would hear it like sizzling, which they assumed was the sound of the witch dying. But really, they're just heating it up so that they can. Yeah. Mm, yes. So delicious. So much about in looking into this history, I was just gagging. There's a lot that is not pleasant about the history of butter. I guess we're going to find that the history of most foods. Exactly. Everything is gross from (laughs) our minds because refrigeration and cleanliness standards. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now we are going to discuss the early history, the creation, Uh the popularization, and the spread of butter. Get out. Um, Okay, so, as I said, the original creation was a matter of happenstance. It was the jostling of milk in a pouch carried by a pack animal on the move. We see animals starting to be domesticated around 11,000 to 9,000 BCE, mainly in southwestern Asia, that was predominantly sheep, and modern-day Iran, which is goats. These animals being used for their milk was pretty common, and then after that, the butter was pretty much inevitable. <laughs> um, let's see. The use of goat skins was the most popular popular to hold the milk because it was non-porous and also readily available. We also see sheeps, or the sheep and the goats in the Near East, but we also see yaks in Northern Asia, and then much later, once cattle is domesticated, we're seeing that in Northern Europe. Right. Settled societies forming after the Neolithic Revolution, so that's around 10,000 BCE, and with them, agriculture and pastoralism spread. Pastoralism actually led to the spread of a mutation that was not going, like, a, that allowed lactose digestion into adulthood. Which means that dairy was going to be much more popular because it wasn't going to make you shit yourself and die. Ugh. And so now we can have butter as a fat source through the entire year. Helpful as fuck. <laughs> okay, so we have some evidence of this. Milk fats have been found on pottery in northern Turkey by Dr. Richard Evershed, which date to 6500 BCE. We have limestone tablets from the Mesopotamia region depicting butter production from 25,000 BCE. So long ago. I can't a even. A flaming or a smoking gun <laughs> to prove that butter was being made. Um, so originally it was a nomadic tradition and then it became central piece of settled society and provided year-long nourishment, as I said. Popularity and necessity of butter spread and became especially popular in Northern Europe because it was a cooler climate, so it was going to keep a little bit better. That is not to say, however, that we aren't seeing butter being used in hotter climates. Specifically, India, we have G. Is that how I say it? G-H-G? Ghee? I feel like it's a G, but anyways. I think I've only heard it as ghee. Well, (laughs) G-H-E-E is being used... A lot in India, especially, which is interesting because that lactose podcast you sent me said that half of India has the gene that makes it so that you can process lactose into mm. adulthood, but the other half doesn't. So it's probably the half that could that was making butter. P.S. That podcast is this podcast will kill you. They have a very good lactose intolerance episode. It's really check good. it out if you want to eat more butter. 
or just dairy product in general. True. Um, okay, so we have in these religious records for Hindu ceremonies where they're using G or ghee. Um, that's mentioned around 2000 BCE. We also have it mentioned as a typical trade article by Periplus of the Eurythrian Sea um, around 1st century CE. Sorry, by what? Periplus? Periplus of the Eurythrian Sea. Are you looking that off now? No, I just, I don't know what, is that a guy? Yeah, it's a dude. Oh, okay. He's a historian, eh, history, a history dude. And he's like, yes, that was a trade article that we used. So we see butter coming out of India. So they're making so much of it, they have stuff to spare. All right. They still are. They still are. Number one producer. <laughs> um, though we also have Roman geographer Strabo describing it as a commodity of Arabia and the Sudan. So obviously lots and lots of stuff there. But... The best bit is that we have the story of Krishna, Hindu god, stealing butter. And that's still told as a story to kids today. Um, we also have it being referenced in the Bible. We have Genesis 18.8, and he took butter and milk, as well as in Proverbs 30.33, surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter. We have so many other examples from kind of Roman Greek areas. Mm-hmm. We have the Greek comic playwright, um, Anasandries, where he refers to the Thracians as butter eaters, and in his natural history, Pliny the Elder calls butter the most delicate of food amongst barbarous nations. Rude. Yeah. The Romans like to use butter for stuff, but they mostly like to trash talk people for eating it. Classic. Which, yeah, seems very on brand. Um, We also have butter being referenced by Hippocrates, Sidonius Apollinarius, as something used for medical purposes like burns and sore eyes. Uh, praising oft with wry face the song of the gluttonous Burgundians who spread rancid butter on his hair. So yeah, also a beauty product. It was still being used to treat burns and abdominal wounds as late as World War II by Russian field doctors. So, and I feel like our parents still kind of got the memo that you should maybe put butter on your burns. Like recently, I feel like people were still thinking that's a good idea. I don't think that I've heard this, but... Maybe your parents are more sophisticated than mine. Perhaps. Um, I didn't say that if anyone asked. <laughs> Anyways, it's also being used on the hair in creams, in lamps as oil, and to soften leather. It's being referenced by Pliny the Elder, Plutarch, Gallen, Clement of Alexandria. These guys are working around 20 to 220 CE, so it's quite an extended period, but they're very much referencing it as like a beauty product, a household good. Um, we have more sweet ointment or butter, better or worse scented than one or the other. That's from Plutarch's Morals. Now, we also see it being used as a staple product in military uh, rations packages. Mm. We have Alexander the Great, Augustus, both having mentioned it as a supply for their troops. And I would assume that it's going to be used in most of the other, like, campaigns throughout Roman history. It just seems like it was a pretty central thing. And I don't think that they changed up the food that they gave those soldiers very much. But that's unsubstantiated, so don't quote that. Well, I mean, it seems just from a practicality standpoint, it's easier to pack rather than other oils or fats because it's hard, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I also feel like because they got, like, granola trail mixy stuff, I think they made, like, historical, like, energy balls with Ooh. it. Delicious. We should find a recipe. We really should. Um, okay, so then that's the really ancient history. When we move into the medieval period, we see butter predominantly being used in Northern Europe. It was considered a peasant food because it was made on farms and that's what these people could eat. That said, it was also hugely culturally significant. Even the rich were eating this. We have an entire church or cathedral dedicated to butter because they paid for it using 
the tariffs that people were paying to eat butter during Lent. So all these people could not go an entire month without it. So they were just like, here's a little cash, Catholic Church. Hope you don't mind if I have some butter. I'd pay a tithe to eat some butter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So is your food so boring? Especially, what is this, like Middle Ages? Yeah. Yeah, food was so bland. Did they, they didn't even have salt then, did they? Oh, a tragedy. We should do an episode on salt. We should do an episode on salt. Um, anywho, we also have some evidence from Irish bogs where they've unearthed wooden vessels that contain butter. So what they did, it was called boulaying, and it's typically done by young girls. They have two different grazing areas for the cattle, so they would move them from one to the other during different seasons, or the change in season, I suppose. So during the summer, they would graze one place. These women would milk the cows, they would make the butter, they would then bury it underground to preserve it until the end of the season when they would go back to the first place and sell that butter. They also were hiding it there to keep it safe from people who might want to steal it because things were not, not super settled at that time. (laughs) Also for religious rites, so there we go. But these vessels are probably from as early as the 17th century BCE all the way like quite a ways later. Mm. And the vessels themselves were about 300 years older than the butter. So pretty cool. Um, we also have, and I wish I could show you the picture. It's a little cat that um, he's churning butter and it's on a manuscript by monks. So these people are drawing little cartoons of it. Um, jumping much further because really nothing interesting happens during the Middle Ages. Um, 19th century CE, Napoleon ordered butter spread to be made by chemists. This was the first prototype of margarine and it was just beef fat and some milk. Oh, I'm going to get into it. Mm -hmm. So up until the 19th century, butter was still really being made on farms predominantly. And then it was being brought to the new world by the pilgrims. And that is the early history of butter. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jump right in with North America because... The rest of the trajectory of the history of butter is most interesting, I find, in North America because we like to do some crazy things with our products. (laughs) Gotta build up to the the 50s. Um, So, yeah, kind of with you're talking about where butter was made on farms predominantly, and that was still very much true in the 1800s. It was an, butter was an integral part of the frontier woman's day and an essential staple of the frontier family diet in the mid to late-ish 1800s. Uh, So they were mostly making it for themselves. Farms at that time were sort of sites of self-subsistence, but then once you had railroads that were able to connect the rural areas to bigger city markets, uh, they were able to create their, to turn their farms into sites of production and to enter sort of local regional consumer markets. And this was also true for the women who are making butter. Is this like when you're saying local markets, are you talking like an actual kind of general store where they would supply their wares? Like yes. That's what it's looking like? I think so. Okay. I'm, this article that I, this is like quoting from was not, it kind of assumed that you were going to know all of this, <laughs> which I mostly, it's, yeah, it makes it's, sense. It's, it makes sense. Originally when people built farms or had farms in the uh, sort of, beginning of the 1800s it was more you had a farm so that you could feed yourself if you were living in a rural area mm-hmm. but then yeah once those you know railroads came along they were able to connect to the bigger cities and it's like oh we're able to produce more than we need for ourselves we can make a profit by selling off our wares to the bigger city where they have more of uh people who want to buy this mm-hmm. produce and would people in the big cities have access to butter besides this then or no would there be people 
I don't think there'd be people churning butter in the city. No, it was mostly a rural. It would all be imported from these. Okay. Yes. Or especially in the bigger cities, I'm sure they were importing from Europe. Okay. Which I actually somehow did not even see in my research, which proves that I'm a bad researcher. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the particular interest to me in terms of this time Mm -hmm. was that, um, so butter was made by women, Mm -hmm. uh, not by the witches. (laughs) Weird. Um, I thought that would have been first. (laughs) So butter uh, making and selling was a very important way for frontier women to sort of have an entry into sort of public spaces and public markets. Then, in 1872, there was some dude who won a butter competition with butter that was made entirely using uh, the technologically advanced creamery system. Yes. Which... uh, It feels like a gimmick. It it is, but it was also great because... So basically, this creamery system exploded because it was so much more efficient. So they used a centrifugal... Centrifugal? Centrifugal. Centrifugal? Okay, continue. I don't know. Okay. It's, they had a centrifuge <laughs> Thank you. that spun the milk and allowed the cream to rise to the top, so you didn't have to wait uh, for the cream to naturally rise to the top, which mm. is what they used to do. So you'd let your butter, or your, your milk rather, sit out so the cream would rise to the top, then you could skim that off and churn that to mm. make your butter. And this is something that we're going to return to once we get mm-hmm. way later now. But that by leaving the, the milk out and giving the cream time to ferment, it was able to develop flavor. Oh. Which is something that we will find is significantly lacking in these sort of technologically, industrially produced butters of basically the entire 19th, 20th century. I'm just going to slowly stop though there. When we mentioned, did they have salt before? Because food sucked. They had to they have, did salt have salt. Because they did have salt. Yeah. They it's the only way to, to preserve it. Exactly. Otherwise yeah. it would just go rancid. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So in the late 1800s, about 1889, creameries, so these creamery systems, had pretty much completely replaced the small rural farm dairies because they just could not compete with the volume that the new technology was allowing. Uh, farmers still made their money by selling the raw milk to the creameries, although I read a couple reports that were saying that they might have actually been able to make more money if they were selling the butter instead of the milk. Well, but it's hard to say, though, because actually butter at this time was a totally... It was a seasonal uh, mm-hmm. product because the cows would only produce milk at yeah. certain times and... Again, they didn't have refrigeration, so you couldn't store it properly, even with the addition of salt. So this is the key loss of note for me and for the particular article that I was reading that I was fascinated by, was that uh, the farm women were no longer able to earn or control the money that they made from the butter that they made and sold. Just another example of man keeping us down. Yep, capitalism striking again. Oh. So butter, <laughs> it's very sad. R.I.P. The dudes. Anyway, but it it oh, was more efficient. We all need to have our butter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so butter was now well on its way to becoming a mass-produced product, which meant that there were rules and regulations regarding sanitation, quality control, marketing. Uh, the bigger dairies started to uh, invest in scientific, quote-unquote, cow breeding. That's right. Big dairy strikes Big again. Dairy. <laughs> That's basically the title of the rest of my yeah. report here. Uh, yeah, so there was a big emphasis on efficiency 
uh, over pretty much all else. It's all about how much can we make, how much can we produce. So this made meant that the butter that was made at home by women was considered to be unscientific, inefficient, and of inferior quality. It's ends up being completely contradictory because not all technological advancements were considered equal. Mm -hmm. Because in 1876, or around like 1872, 1876, margarine was invented. And it was basically the first completely manufactured food product. And everyone was basically freaking out about how it was made by technology. Meanwhile, there they were poo-pooing butter made at home in your old churn. And it's like, well, that's not scientific. <sighs> they got to get their facts straight. Yeah. Um, I read an article from 1856 in Scientific American called Artificial Butter, <gasps> which Love. was just very inflammatory. And they were, <laughs> there was a lot of science and stuff about patents and it was in a very small font with interesting spellings. Mm. Uh, and they were talking about all the instances of people making fake butter and the process that we later know to be um, Mej Mourier's margarine or oleomargarine. Mm. Uh, but this, they were more concerned about the idea of people at this time who seemed to be passing off fake butter as real butter, which was basically a point of contention up until the 50s for these butter lobbyists. Yeah, that seems real crazy. <laughs> also, interesting that mm. they have such a negative reaction to it, and then I'm saying Napoleon tried to get a butter spread going in, like, the 19th century, too. Oh! So, and he was super cool with it. Napoleon so. was the one... Yeah, well, it's not... Napoleon. It's Napoleon the Third. Okay. Who was his grandson? Okay. Okay. I forget. Napoleon. Yes. So we can skip all the way down. So margarine versus butter. Margarine was invented in 1869 Mm -hmm. by French chemist Mejmuri. I love that. Should know how to pronounce that, but I don't. It's a weird spelling. Um, So it was invented as a quote unquote cheap and nutritive fat aimed Mm. to feed the French army. Um, But not surprisingly, I think it actually didn't take off in France or in Europe at all, really, for that matter, because butter is basically in France's gastronomic DNA. So they weren't about to accept this paltry mix of beef fat and like skim milk powder made in a machine. Yeah, all of the ways Oh, margarine. Sorry. Sorry, margarine. (laughs) Yeah, if you were raised on margarine, you should stop listening. Just kidding, don't. (laughs) No, don't. Uh, so yes, but margarine in North America had a very interesting and different saga. It was subject to a lot of discriminatory laws in both Canada and the United States. It was purportedly in the interest of public good because of those, again, <laughs> accusations of fraud, which was true. People were truly passing off margarine as butter. I don't know who bought it because... You could taste that immediately. Although I guess if you're really poor, anything tastes better than being hungry. But the problem is that butter or margarine was extremely cheap to make. It was a fraction of the cost. It should have been as margarine, a fraction of the cost of real butter. But then if you're selling it as real, you're like, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's you're you're cheating people. (laughs) Full line. Fraud. Uh, But then there was also 
accusations that murdering was bad for you, which... That seems on brand. Yeah. yeah, well, I, that it is. It's a tricky one. We're gonna we'll get to that later. Um, so, as briefly mentioned before, people were suspicious of margarine since it was the first fully manufactured food product, which is also kind of hilarious since factory produced food later became the ideal uh, hmm. in the fifties. When yeah. it's you know you want the most manufactured white bread, anything that looks like white it was made bread. in a factory is considered to be better. Then, and even with the, you know, they were factory producing butter at this time and anything made at home was considered inferior. So it's a bit of a double standard, but again, something that is had no real context in reality. Like margarine doesn't exist in the natural world. Ah, dear. <laughs> yeah, so in the, the U.S., they started first with very strict labeling restrictions and heavy taxation of margarine. But that, of course, didn't work because the fraudulent sale of margarine as butter increased because manufacturers didn't want to pay the tax. So then a lot of the states chose to uh, put coloring laws into effect. So these laws varied by state, but for the most part, it became illegal to sell margarine that was colored yellow without being subject to heavy taxes. So a lot of states just sold it as its natural white, which is actually not even true because... It's all chemicals, the color... It's actually naturally gray. I have a horrifying description of the way that margarine and the hydrogenation process goes. So it's... Yeah, so otherwise, in its natural form, they'd sell it as white, which was highly unappealing to spread what looks like just pure lard on toast. But that was a way to avoid the taxes. Some states even went to the extreme ways of making uh, margarine manufacturers dye their margarine pink. Love it. Seems so disgusting. Truly horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In World War II, there was a huge spike in butter prices and everyone freaked out. So (sighs) by the 50s, margarine was actually just pretty normalized in the States because it was cheaper and, and it was they, like, good. Had they had to, you know, and yeah. they, most of the laws were repealed in the States about the taxation and the coloring by around the 50s, 60s, 60s. In Canada, margarine was straight up banned from 1886 until 1949. <laughs> Sorry, 1949. 1949. <laughs> there was a brief break from 1917 to 1922 because butter prices spiked with the First World War. The ban was lifted in 1949 when margarine's prohibition became an obstacle for Newfoundland to join the Confederation. (laughs) But because of where they lived, they didn't have cows and butter was actually not a big part of their diet because it's so far north and remote. But they had basically a cottage industry of margarine production. So they (laughs) were super obsessed with margarine. And we're basically not going to give it up. So the Canadian government had to let them, because they didn't want it banned in one yeah. place and not banned. So it's, this seems like some Quebec bullshit. Oh, well, Quebec maintained its bullshit, of course. Um, <laughs> in, so 1948, Supreme Court of Canada decided that margarine was no longer, quote unquote, an injurious product against which the population had to be protected. I love that this went to the Supreme Court. Oh, it had to be. Uh, So then the regulation became a provincial issue. Quebec and PEI kept it banned until the 60s. Ontario kept the rule about colored margarine until 1995. Quebec was still regulating the color of margarine 
until 2008. Oh my lord. They fucking hate margarine. Again, the French. <laughs> I hate fair. Fair. Butter. Margarine is disgusting. Ugh. But just don't eat it then. <laughs> uh, so yes. So in both Canada and the States, the harsh regu- regulations were obviously owed to the powerful dairy farm lobbyists. Which was kind of silly since at the time the first margarine bans were in effect. Margarine consumption was nowhere near what butter consumption was at. Hmm. Did it like propel it kind of into being obviously like the lack of butter during the war and the price and everything would bump it up a little bit? The price was a big one. I so there's an article that I read that was written in 1935 called Some Factors Affecting Butter Consumption. <laughs> And it was specifically looking at people's income, the price of butter, and use of substitutes. Mm. And the study ran from, it was based on a study running from 1920 to 1934 in the States. Mm. And it said that for the most part, the amount of butter consumed directly reflected income levels. So obviously, like, poor poor people are the Mm -hmm. people who are eating margarine. But it was thinking that even during the Depression, butter consumption increased. Interesting. Which... It's interesting. Uh, But the author in 1935 did not see margarine as a direct competitor to butter because the price was so, like, not even in the same sphere. It was so much cheaper that it was considered basically different. Because the people who were mostly going to buy butter wouldn't even consider buying margarine because it's such a pale imitation. And and the people who were buying margarine wouldn't have considered buying butter because they couldn't afford it. Yes. Okay, so yeah. it wasn't like, oh, this big, huge fight really brought margarine into the public eye. Um, no, yes and no. I mean, it's kind of interesting because there was, there's some things where the, in Canada, when the decision was being made in the 1920s about whether to go back to banning it, which of mm-hmm. course is what they did, there were a bunch of women who would just gain their suffrage and were able to vote. So all of these rich women were lobbying for margarine to be unbanned because they were concerned about having a cheap alternative for poor children. So it's like, you know, every rich 20th century lady's favorite obsession, the poor children need to have a food. Oh God. Aren't we still a little obsessed with that though? Yeah. I mean, the thing is they weren't wrong. No, they're not wrong. But it didn't work because they're women and nobody cares. Twenties. So um, I would just like to remind us all at this moment that until World War One, margarine was mostly made of beef fat. It was the first uh, margarine producers? Oleo margarine. Oleo is Latin for beef. Yes. Or, yes. I actually knew that. And I got a C in my Latin class. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Babs. Uh, it's just gross. But beef fat is not the only disgusting thing in margarine. Um, I have a kind of long quote. Quote. (laughs) Margarine is mostly made from hydrogenated fats now. Which... This is going to make me sound so dumb, but what exactly is hydrogenated? Here's the thing. I read like a 30-page article all about it, and I don't understand. I mean, I kind of do. So hydrogenation... (laughs) The process of hydrogenation involves mixing vegetable oils with a catalyst such as finely ground nickel 
Oh my god. Subjecting the oil to high temperatures and pressures and then pumping hydrogen gas through the liquid. Oh my so god. So that, that's what makes it solid. So you have a liquid oil and then you pump it through metals and gas. Uh, so then it says the smelly, gray, unpleasant tasting substance that emerges from the hydrogenation process requires steam cleaning under high temperature and pressure to remove the foul odor. Manufacturers bleach this substance to remove the gray color and later add chemical colorings and flavorings to mimic the appearance and taste of butter. That sounds so horrible! Hydrogenated oils may contain trace elements of metal catalysts used to produce them. So... I will say that this is from an article that is highly against margarine. So it's like, there's a bit of a... It's actually a chapter in the book. This is from Margarine Butter and the Trans Fats Fiasco from the book Nutritionism Hmm. of of 2013. So, yeah. Really... Gross. That's like when you find out that cigarettes have like one like <laughs> weed killer or something in it, and you're like, that seems fine. It's like, sure, yeah. Why not? Just like throw some tar, a little Drano in there. Who even cares? Ugh. Okay. So trans fat fiasco. Such a deal. So from the 50s <laughs> on, everyone, margarine consumption is up because people are poor and it's the 50s and everyone is all obsessed with fuck about anything. just only want fake foods. If it's made in a factory, I want it. Uh, so in the fifties, the American heart association started to take note that eating certain foods in particular, like hydrogenated, uh, unsaturated fats. Oh my goodness. There's so many saturated, unsaturated. I'm going to get them all mixed up. So they were thinking they started taking note that eating certain foods could be linked to heart disease. Uh, they found that diets high in cholesterol and saturated fats uh, contributed to higher blood cholesterol levels, whereas they found that eating polyunsaturated fats lowered total cholesterol levels. So they start. This is sort of the start of the good fats versus bad fats discussion, which is in itself confusing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so they knew that fully hydrogenated fats were shown in some studies to raise cholesterol. So then they were thinking maybe we could do partially hydrogenated polyunsaturated fats, which just sounds terrible. Oh, it's, there's, I don't even know. Basically this thing they decided is bad. And then they decided that polyunsaturated fats are good and better over saturated fats. But actually, apparently, no one had actually studied this. So basically, in the 60s, a bunch of nutritionists and the American Heart Association were basically just like, yeah, we've seen a couple studies that show that this thing is probably better than this other thing. So you should eat foods with this one thing that we think is maybe good. Oh, God. So because of these completely un substantiated assumptions, margarine was suddenly promoted promoted as healthier than butter because it had these partially hydrogenated polyunsaturated fats. Which, like, margarine is still to this day, like, being touted by the Houghton Heart and Stroke Foundation as being good. Do you remember the um, base ad? Oh, I know. That's this whole foundation of my next, this whole... Please continue, sorry. So new studies with about good fats versus bad fats. Manufacturers then were like, oh, we can totally capitalize on this. And so they, the margarine manufacturers boosted their sales by marketing 
margarine as a nutritious food with health benefits. Uh, For the first time, margarine in the sort of 60s and early 70s was marketed not as a butter imitation, but rather as a superior health food in total square scare quotes. And the trend continues. Uh, So developments are made in nutrition science and diet consciousness. Food scientists continue to continually re-engineer margarine, which we see. So, for example, the 80s is the low-fat era. So everyone's freaking out. Big sugar was basically like, fat's bad. Totally (laughs) don't eat fat, but eat lots of sugar. Which is, you know, a different topic. So margarine producers came out with low or reduced fat spreads. Which doesn't make sense but that's literally it's literally fat you can't have a low anyway they would mix water and other additives like gelatin and stuff into the margarine and or whip it to make it technically lighter but it's you know if you're putting a it's still the same it's a fast uh butter actually people the butter manufacturers were kind of also trying to keep up. So in the 80s and 90s, it kind of became a reversal where butter was attempting to do what margarine was doing by getting in on these weird low-fat spread situations. Uh, Finally, oh, in the 90s, it had become a just an accepted fact that margarine was healthier than butter. Also in the 90s, though, there was the discovery of trans fats and their adverse effects on blood cholesterol. So they did this 1990. There was a study that was done where it's like, oh, when you hydrogenate things and do all these chemical processing, trans fats are a thing that come about and they are worse than everything else. (laughs) It's... But basically... The good fats versus bad fats trope continued and trans fats were just kind of lumped into the bad fats Mm -hmm. and everyone was able to sort of, the margarine producers were sort of able to scramble around behind the scenes and just remove trans fats from their formulation and just never talk about the fact that for years they had been promoting a health food that was full of this trans fat worse of, of all fats. Hmm, pretty <laughs> clever. Yeah, so they were able to make trans fats the big enemy and meanwhile pre- like reformulate everything to include negligible amounts of trans fats. Although by laws in the States with labeling, you can have a formulation of per serving size 0.5 grams of trans fats and still call it trans fat free. And also the serving size is basically whatever you want to call it, so... So you have a ton of trans fats still. Yeah, there's still lots of trans fats. And the whole problem, again, with hydrogenation and just everything about the process of making margarine, even now as they're still kind of trying to rework the process and get away from using these trans fats, it's a lot of weird chemical engineering that we don't really know anything about and haven't studied the effects of what happens when you chemically engineer these fats. And if they're able to maintain their quote unquote good or quote unquote bad properties. But also that Basel commercial where they have all the moms in the audience. Oh, we're not. Uh, and then they have the little kids on the stage and they read out of paper why they love their moms. That's yeah. an effective advertising. Yeah. It's, it's, I want to cry. Emotional and ma- manipulation. 
They're playing I'm manipulated. I know. And that but that's the thing. That's literally what they were doing. And it's used like, I don't know, saw so many instances just reading through of people creating margarines and or different reformulations of butter with like gelatin or like water mixed in where they have to basically put in chemical flavorings to make it taste like butter. <laughs> it's so ironic. But yeah, and then marketing it as a health food when it's not at all. And I'm not saying that it's bad for you like or it's good pretty. for you, but it's, you know, moderation. It's fat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically all of these instances from the eighties, nineties and beyond it's, we're seeing highly processed foods being promoted as healthier than the original thing, which is just straight up butter. That's been creamed. It's a fat, but it's natural. Uh, there's a story from journalist Robert Benchley in a 1930 article in the Detroit athletic club news, where he jokes about his son's, uh, in quotes, fantastical notion of butter. He says, my two little boys seem to have the idea that butter grows on trees when everyone knows that it is cut in great sheets by a butter cutter. <gasps> I so, love that. Yeah, but it's funny. So like, he's obviously being facetious and yeah. kind of joking around, but it totally highlights the fact that even butter had become so highly produced and mechanized that there's no mention of cows in his quote unquote true description of where butter comes from. Or yaks, or sheep, or goats. Yes. <laughs> but more recently, uh, people have been looking to get away from this bland, industrialized, or completely manufactured butter uh, in favor of the more flavorful old style where you allow your cream to mature, develop, just leave it out for a while, get some funk, then turn it up. Ugh. Turned up, turned yeah, out. throw back to our frontier <laughs> butter ladies. <laughs> the yaks. Which are still being used. Yes. Well, just, yeah. So flavor, and especially the time that it takes to develop, was the enemy of post-World War II industrial food preparation. But now we're living in an age of farm to table, and everyone seems to be on the quest to find the best butter. I just, you know, doing a quick scan of the internet and find lots of listicles, ranking butters of all kinds, extolling the virtues of this French butter or that Italian or this artisanal small batch variety from New York. Compound what? butters. What's a compound butter? You know all about compound butters where you mix. Oh, flavored butters. Flavored, yeah, like flavored butter. Hell so yeah. There's so many recipes for making butter of that kind. So it seems like we're, you know, butter's back in everyone's good graces. Margarine's still kind of out there being promoted as a health food, but what it's are you going to do? Time. Yeah, but it seems like we're, you know, going back to our roots, getting things more interesting. That's kind of all I have. I don't know what else you want to talk yeah. about in terms of butter. I'm good. I, I told you about the butter movie. Yeah, the butter movie. I did read like half of an article about people who were sculpting butter in the 1800s, but then amazing the sculptures were all like really boring and ugly. And I got <laughs> lost interest. There wasn't like the last supper in butter. That's strange. I yeah. It like was that, but that's boring. It was more, it's like butter is a symbol of industry. So we're going to like carve butter and be like, look at how rich we are. Ugh. Yeah. I don't know. Well, no, it's just really interesting. That something that was so substantially like, a food of necessity. People were using this to get the fat when they really desperately needed it. Just really, really took on a life of its own. 
Yeah. And I think, and this is sort of why we want to do this podcast is to find out the ways that foods can have such humble beginnings and grow and become totally sort of turned into a Frankenstein monster in our industrial North American settings. Yeah. Well, all right. We'll see you for the next one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. we got to think about what we're going to do next. And um, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.